And now, Ravage Love. Halloween month, Julie! Sail Halloween! Sail Halloween! Hey! If you're not going to you won't get it, but hey, Renee! Hey, Julie! How are you? Oh my god, I am so excited that it's October and Halloween's here. I don't think um, we're trick-or-treating this year, um, mm. but I'm also on the hunt for a 12-foot skeleton, so... If we have any hookups in Quebec who wants to like mail me a 12 foot skeleton, it's the only place in Canada you can get them right now. Like DM me, like slide in there. Cause I need to talk to you. <laughs> Every, so Buzzfeed has an entire listicle of this 12 foot skeleton and legit. The second I saw it, the second I saw it, someone had, had it strapped to their like Austin mini and was driving it home. And I legit was like, this is Renee. Renee needs this 12 foot skeleton and you have a minivan so you could theoretically bring it home yeah only I'm sure you have to assemble it um that was probably a floor model oh maybe maybe that's why they were (laughs) either way you need this in your life because nobody loves Halloween more than Renee and so I'm super pumped because all this month we are reading Halloween themed slash spooky slash mm-hmm. just paranormal weird halloween content for the entire month of october so the whole strap month. in kids because whew, we are excited <laughs> <laughs> we also have some big things happening this month too mm-hmm. so on october 30th we're gonna do a live reading on Ooh. instagram so that will be at 7 p.m mountain standard time and 9 eastern so we hope you can all tune in for that because we're going to be in costumes. Oh, yeah, we are. And then we're also playing bingo this month. So sure. I went ahead and made these bingo cards. I'm going to put them on Instagram. And for the first three people that win a bingo, um, you're going to get a $5 gift card to either the Kindle store or the Kobo store, your choice. But it's for the first three people that contact us with a bingo. I'm going to ask... That you only play one bingo card, but I'm never gonna know if you play more than one. So, <laughs> so when that happens, just uh, DM us on Instagram or on Twitter, whichever, and we will be in touch. Yes. So again, head to our Insta. One, if you're not following us on Instagram, what are you even doing with your life? Um, Come on. But, um, yeah. See, even Pepper is like, girl. <laughs> Pepper um, can't even use Instagram, and she's like, come on, y'all. Yeah, it's what a cool kid's at. So Instagram and Twitter, Ravage Love for both. You particularly need to hit it up this week, not just so you can get access to the bingo card, but also so you can see the covers of our books. Because <laughs> this week, whoo, we are reading Pulp Fiction. Literally yep. old-ass books. So old, they don't even have a barcode on them. Thanks to a hookup that Renee got where a woman in the Edmonton area collects old school Pulp Fiction. And also like, I think she had like Nancy Drew and stuff. Like she had a whole bunch of old in immaculate condition, which is another reason why you need to just go and see them on our socials because this book is in pristine condition and my book is from the fifties. Yeah. And she also, um, I found out about this woman because she sells on Etsy. So I will post a link to her Etsy page as well. If you want to go buy a bundle of like Pulp Fiction novels, you can do that there. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think so. Yeah. I think we should just launch into it because this week's content is bananas. And I'm so I, excited. Oh my God. I had such a good time this week. Did you have a good time? I did. I did. You know, one thing I'm noticing though about like older books is that the pages are really thick. So it feels like they're longer than they actually are. Mm. That's what I'm experiencing. So I'm like, oh man, I still have so many pages left, but my book was only 175 pages. Oh, okay. And I had the same problem last week as well, where I was like, oh, it's so much, but it's like the pages were just super thick. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. None of this like tiny ass biblical paper they had. Um, Yeah, so I'm going to launch right into it because I am so excited to talk about my book. My book is called The Chinese Keyhole uh, by Richard Himmel, and it was published in January of 51. It cost a whopping 25 cents. Uh, Yeah. And 
what's interesting, so Richard Himmel, who's the author of the book, that is his real name. Sometimes people wrote under like Nom de Prim, but that was his real name. He died in um, the year 2000 at 79. And what's interesting when I did a deep dive into Richard is that, or also known as Dick, people call him Dick. Um, classic. <laughs> classic. Dick was actually a, like, world-famous interior designer. What? Uh, from Chicago, who's uh, actually in, like, the interior design, like, Hall of Fame in the U.S. Um, had a real, yeah, was, like, extremely talented at interior design. But his passion was writing. And in particular, writing really pulpy kind of crime books. But I found this incredible quote. <laughs> Um, that came out when uh, in, in his obituary that I found that said, and I quote, my mother always said my typewriter should be washed out with soap uh, <laughs> <laughs> because his books were like pretty smutty for the 50s, which I love. So his last book, he had a long hiatus where he went back to doing interior design, but kind of ended his life with his real passion of writing. So his last book came out in 82. All of his books sold really well. They were all kind of spy, detective, real, like, legit Pulp Fiction. Now, what's important to know about my book, um, it was quite short. It was uh, 128 pages. Like you said, pretty thick pages. Just shocking how in incredible condition this book is. Um, smells like old book. Like, you know when you're reading it, and you're like, oh, my God, this smells like a used bookstore. Like, I loved it. Yeah. I loved it. Like, it was a very tactile experience. Um, but important to know, this was... 51. So this was, you know, wartime, post-war, we're afraid of the communists. This is like, yeah. so I, I have all of that in your memory. So mm -hmm. <clears throat> let me begin. Johnny is in bed with beautiful Tina, whom he likes, but is incapable of loving. Um, when he gets a call from Jacques saying, hey, Bidget has a job for you. So Johnny had been a spy during the war. Uh, and then post-war became a lawyer and then was approached to be a spy again using his law firm as a front. So he really did work as a lawyer, but he took on very few cases and it was mostly a front for him to be a spy against the communists and to really look and fight against, you know, the commies coming to the United States. And he, so because he's a spy, he knows the deal, which is, you know, you don't tell your lady what you actually do for a living and you don't get the full information. So he's always kind of getting these tiny little assignments, doesn't really know all the pieces to the puzzle. So he's in his feelings because this Tina woman loves him very much. And he's like, I really like you. And I like fucking you basically, but I just, I'm incapable of loving and um, and in the back of his mind, he's also really distraught because the night before, his partner in both his law firm and a fellow spy was shot five times in the back. And he <gasps> knows that he was actually the intended target. So he's all distraught and in his feelings because his best friend and his partner was killed, but he can't tell his girlfriend why or how because he, she doesn't know that he's a spy. So he's just like, oh, I live this life of complexity. So Jacques arrives with a really ugly tie and tells him to wear it to this sketchy strip club in Chinatown that is notorious for ripping off tourists. Turns out the tie is hideous because it has a secret message encoded in it. Oh. So he's to go to this strip club and wait to be approached with the next piece of information. I'm going to read you a piece of that scene. So just gird your loins because it's... <laughs> so he goes to the strip club, someone approaches him, recognizes the tie and says, okay, um, the next piece of information is I need you to meet me at 2625 Mason Street once the show is done. He goes there and he finds the messenger dying from being beaten and whipped. Oh my God. And because there is a whip involved in the burlesque show that he went to see, he's like, oh no, someone, the bad guy was part of the strip club. Um, so before she dies, he's holding her in her arms and she gurgles out the words world and Chloe. So he goes back to the burlesque show to try to find some information and he sees a magazine that's called United World. He's like, oh, she said world. And then he notices on the masthead that the editor is Chloe Renard. So he's like, oh my gosh, this is who I have to find. So it's really this like clue thing. He just finds a clue, goes to the next place and then he finds this Chloe woman. It turns out that 
her job is to take secret messages and write them into her columns for this United World magazine. So if you don't know anything, you're just reading it, but it turns out it's actually a way in which spies are sharing information about commies. So Mm -hmm. then he's like, oh, okay, this is kind of cool. But he really starts falling for this Chloe woman and is like, oh my gosh, she's like really smart and really beautiful and she's in my world so I could be honest with her. Um, So he's really kind of torn up about like, oh, maybe I can love somebody and maybe this is my person. So then he figures out that, oh, this magazine is actually used by both sides and that commies are sending messages to commies in it and anti-commies are sending messages to anti-commies and this magazine is all torn up in this stuff. So then he goes back to Jacques and is like, look, I delivered the message. Now what do I do? And Jacques says, okay, here's some hotel keys. I need you to go to this hotel. So then he's like, oh my God, this is it. This is the big assignment. This is the big thing that's going to make my career. Um, And he gets there and sure enough, he gets, he meets this other man who doesn't provide his name, who says, "Um, I need you to find the head of this Chinese spy ring. There is a Chinese spy ring here in Chicago and I need you to figure out who it is. This is the big job that will make or break you. So in looking for clues, he figures out, oh no, I'm looking for them and now they're looking for me. So they're going to go and hurt my beloved Chloe, the editor of the United World. So he goes back to find her, finds her, they almost bone, but then he's like, no, no, you're too chaste and wonderful and I don't want to ruin you. I'm a mess. Basically, he's like a fuckboy. Um, anyways, he takes Chloe and he says, okay, I'm going to stick you in this hotel. Stay here safely. I'm going to go and try to find the, you know, Charlie, who is the owner of the Chinese keyhole, who I suspect is the ringleader in this whole thing. Goes there. Sure enough, Charlie's sketchy. They get into this shootout. He shoots the owner of the Chinese keyhole, kills him, and then discovers this trunk in the room, which has all of these blueprints for creating bombs that were on their way to China and to the commies. So he's like, whew, nailed it. Then he's like, oh no, Chloe. Sure enough, goes back. She's gone. Um, she's been kidnapped by a dude with a whip. <gasps> um, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And so then he has to go and find Chloe and try to rescue Chloe. And then he manages to do so, but again, is constantly having to hide her in different places. And decides to go back to the Chinese keyhole. He goes downstairs and sees the stage show is happening. Um, And Chloe is tied to a pole in the middle of the stage. And they've integrated her into the performance. So he's like, this woman was kidnapped and is now being whipped on stage by these people who, and everyone in the audience thinks it's just like a sexy burlesque show. But this woman's actually being held prisoner and actually being whipped on stage. So he like heroically drops the curtain, saves Chloe, fights with the guy who has the whip, kills him. The cops come, they slip out the side door and they hop in a cab and then they kiss. And he then says, I have to end this um, because I love you too much. And she's like, you know what? I think this whole thing that like brought my life into focus, I'm going to move back to Nebraska and I'm going to marry this high school sweetheart that I thought just wasn't, you know, I was too good for him or he was too good for me. And I, I just couldn't figure it out. I'm just going to go back and I want to live a simple life in Nebraska. And he's like, all right, Chloe, I'm no good for you anyway. Goes back to his apartment to like, just basically get his life together and say like, okay, I've done this gig. I did what I needed to do. I'm going to send a message to the headquarters and except he gets there and who's there? Jacques who it turns out is the actual leader of the Chinese spy ring. (gasps) So he was a double agent who was playing both sides. So it turns out that uh, Johnny suspected that all along, but he just doesn't tell you as the reader, which I found really interesting the way he wrote that. So he was like, yeah, I'm making it seem like I'm just going home. But then he's like, I fucking knew it was you, Jacques. And they get into a shootout and he kills him. Um, And then uh, Zoe takes a cab back uh to tina's house the woman that he was in bed with at the beginning of the book and says you know what maybe i'm gonna make it work with tina and so weirdly on the surface doesn't actually necessarily read as a romance um and definitely you know it's more in the pulp fiction-y kind of sense but it was interesting that it began and ended with this romance and that there was romance elements throughout of this like uh, yeah, I'm trying to wrestle with my feelings and this woman likes me, but I don't know if I can love her back. And I don't know. It was so fun to read. Like there's a reason why Pulp Fiction is 
bestsellers all the time, right? Like these people, like even like Tom Clancy, like all of this kind of stuff, like it's a quick read. It's action packed. There's like 128 pages, but tons of stuff happen. So I felt myself like really not having a difficult time reading this one at all. In terms of the spice factor, um, I would give it like maybe one out of five spoonfuls of cayenne. Like it wasn't, uh, I would say the, there was some sexual tension. There was no actual fucking throughout, to be clear. Um, but there was good sexual tension in the scenes that there were. And there was this fucking intense, <laughs> super filthy scene at the strip club that I was like, okay. Okay, 1951. I I'll take it. Um. So yeah, that was that was the Chinese Keyhole by Richard Hamill. Again, you have to go to our Instagram and see the cover because there's a man whipping another man, and then there's this blonde on the cover. And I will explain who she is when I do my reenactment. But um, yeah, the 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 it was a real journey, I have to say, and like literally. The back is like it's yeah through a mess of murder, mayhem, and lust and sadism. He smashed his way to the Chinese keyhole where hell was set to music. Whew. It was. Wow! Yeah, yeah. So that was the Chinese keyhole. What did you get up to this week, Renee? Um, I read a book called *Son of a Witch*, and it's number twenty-six in the Coaxman series. And my book was written by Troy Conway. And Troy Conway is actually Michael Avalone. And Michael Avalone has written over 223 um, books, but it says that he boasts over a thousand, which I believe. Um, <clears throat> and he has t- 17 different pseudonyms that he writes under. Oh. Yeah. Um, but the neat thing that I found as I was like digging into him is that he actually was married to this woman called Fran Weinstein. Does that ring any bells for you? No. Okay. So... Frances Janet Weinstein was an American abortion rights advocate, and she was the director of the New Jersey Right to Choose, as well as Choice New Jersey, and a coalition of 30 abortion rights groups, which I thought was, yeah, super cool. Um, And you can read more about her. I'm not going to go into the whole kit and caboodle, but um, she was a really, really big deal. And um, she initiated litigation contesting a 1975 state law that banned the use of Medicaid-funding abortion. Um, And in 82, they ruled in favor of the lawsuit. So that's super cool. That's amazing. I know. I did not expect that considering how chauvinist my book was. Um, (laughs) And then their son, David Avalone, um, he is a film, um, he, write, he, he writes and edits films, he writes comic books, um, and he's a pro-choice activist as well. And he um, has written a lot of comic books featuring Elvira and Betty Page um, and all sorts of things like that. So really, really neat family, I thought. Um, yes. And David is also kind of um, in charge of his father's legacy. So he writes a lot about him. He speaks a lot about him, which I thought was really, really sweet as well. So um, that's the background on my guide because I thought it was really neat. So my book is Son of a Witch and it opens with Rod Damon, who is the coaxman. However, the coaxman is kind of like his side hustle. It's it's part of a spy organization, um, but he is actually a professor of sociology. Um, And he is a principal lecturer and founder of the League for Sexual Dynamics. So he's also just like a sexologist. Um, And then he works for the Thaddeus X Koch Foundation, which is his the spy ring he works for. Um, And so the book opens with Rod or Big Rod, as he sometimes refers to himself (laughs) as. Kind of connecting with this woman named Anna. And Anna is um, just like... Uh, a fashion designer, I think. And um, she is talking about how she's also a priestess in this coven. And she um, is really, she's trying to get him to come to um, this thing called the World Witch Convention, where witches and warlocks arrive to do things like black masses and different rituals and stuff, but they have to compete in becoming the world witch or the world warlock. And they want an American representative on the team. Um, and Anna has heard tales of his um, his ability to fuck, 
I guess is that's <laughs> just the best way to put it. Um, and so she decides, you know, she kind of wants to like try it out and sure enough, they just bang a lot. Now, what makes Rod unique in that situation is that he has a condition called uh, priapus or like something like that, um, which is basically like he can just fuck without stopping. Like he just, he won't come. And I'll tell you, Julie, he never comes in this book. What? But he does fuck nonstop. Um, <laughs> so um, they have sex and she has no fewer than six orgasms. Um, and she talks about how the devil had told her about Rod. And um, he's kind of like, he's a sociologist. So he's sort of like, okay, whatever. But he's like, you know what? As a sociologist, I want to come and see this thing. I want to see what's going on. So yeah, I'll come. I'll come to your coven and stuff. Um, and so he goes to this event with her in the evening so he can qualify to represent the Americans at this championship. And while he's there, he's like dressed up in robes and stuff. And he just kind of thinks it's super hokey. But then something happens. He just becomes a machine. Like he's already a machine, but he becomes like this like godlike machine where he's just plowing everybody. So he starts plowing all these women, like screaming that he's a god. And um, he just fucks all these women until they pass out from pleasure. Um, and so they're all like, you are, you know, you are a gift and you, yes, you can represent us. But then he hears the voice of the devil and he's like, what? And the devil's like, you are my emissary and you must go and represent me at this, at this championship. And you're going to be, um, world warlock. And he's like, uh, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. And then at one point he sees the devil because he's trying to tell Anna, he's like, you know what? He's like, this is really stupid. Like, I'm sure there's just speakers back there. And then this like satyr comes out and is like, like, <laughs> and then runs away. And he's like, oh shit, this is real. Okay. And so he's like, okay, I'm going to go think about this, but I'll let you know. So he goes back to his bachelor pad, which is like super swanky. Like think like Ron Burgundy style. Like that's, oh. that's who this guy is. Um, and there, this guy who he calls Walrus Mustache greets him and is like, so how did you like it? And he's like, oh, fuck, it was you. You were doing the voice and, and you got somebody to act out the satyr. Uh, I see. And he's like, yes, it was all a setup to get you to qualify for this event. So nobody would know that you're there on spy work. And he's like, okay, all right. So what he tells him is that there's an information leak from NATO. And for, for those who don't know, that's the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Um, so there's been a leak, an information leak, and they believe that um, it's this general called Percival Blanding, who is a member of NATO, who has stolen this information and he's going to pass it on to the opposition. But he lives in a town just outside of where um, the contest is taking place. So they're going to send Rod to the contest to compete under the guise of him being a warlock. Well, meanwhile, he's going to find out what happened to all these secrets and stuff with Percival. So they send him to this building where he has to learn about witchcraft, basically, because he doesn't know anything about it. And he meets this woman called Felicia Wilson. And Felicia Wilson is a lady sociologist. And she has a specialty in um, witchcraft. So she teaches him all about witchcraft for like an hour or sorry, eight hours. And then she does this trick with like her suitcase where it floats over. And he's like, oh my God, is she a real witch? I don't know. Um, but she's like, I'm going to be in England actually on vacation. So maybe I'll see you there. And he's like, okay. So he goes to the plane to head over to England and he meets Nora Talbot. And Nora is um, a member of his four person coven, but also kind of like his liaison in this. So she's explaining to him all the rules and everything that, um, you know, has to happen. And um, at the hotel, because um, they arrive and they have to go to the hotel and she explains, you know, that like there's an SBAT scheduled for that evening, which is like, where are they going to go fuck? And she's like really upset because obviously the opposition has heard about um, his prowess in the sack and they're scared. So they're trying to, they're trying to plan um, an S bat for the evening so that he wears himself out. But little do they know he can't be worn out. Um, so he, uh, he, she's like, you need to rest. And like, 
he's just so horny. Like he comes on to everybody always. Like he's constantly wanting to bang everybody he meets. And he like, is not as like, he's not shy about it. He's like, Oh, titties. Oh, legs. Oh, ass. Like always. So he's like coming on a Nora. And she's like, no, no, you have to conserve your energy. You're up against the Italian champion. And he's like the one you need, like you have to beat him. We have, we have to like take the crown as Americans. Nobody believes in us. It's like, okay. So he rests. And then um, Nora arrives in the evening with like his robes and everything. And um, she starts to put this ointment on his dick. And it's not that he needs it, Julie, but she doesn't know. She has no idea about his powers. And this ointment just drives him completely nuts that he can no longer control himself. So he and Nora start to bang. So they bang in, they bang in. And then Nora's like, oh, I hear the music from the Sabbath. We have to go um because we're gonna be late and he's like i he's like i can't stop now so he basically keeps her on his dick and walks with her on his dick to the sabbath which is a real power move julie Uh um and he arrives and all the witches and wizards are like what the fuck and then he just bangs her on the altar meanwhile the espat's happening behind him and um he's just banging her and banging her and then she passes out because she just experienced too much pleasure she passed out from it but then all the other witches are like holy shit and so they all decide that they're tired with their partners and they're going to go bang him as well so i don't know how many people he bangs that night it could be 10 it could be 20 but he bangs all these women and they're all like passed out from pleasure all over the place and obviously he qualifies right they're like okay yeah you qualify for this um so he's like, do, 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 so great. So the next day he decides he's going to try and find the general. So he heads out um, for a walk in the moors and he comes across this man who's like, just kind of like hanging out and they start chatting and he's like, oh, you know, he's like, what do you do? And he's like, oh, I'm a sociologist and a sexologist. Um, he's like, oh, he's like, well, I'm actually having trouble with my wife. You know, I'm, I'm older and I'm tired and I can't really pleasure her the way that she wants. Do you have any suggestions? He's like, I have vitamins. I'm going to give you these vitamins. You also have to like, make sure that like you kind of wine and dine her and like seduce her. And then, you know, it'll be great. Then he finds out it's the general. It's the guy who he's looking for. Mm -hmm. So he's like, okay, I'm going to get my vitamins and I'll meet you back here. Meanwhile, um, he, so he, he runs back, he gets his vitamins. They meet again on the road. And then this yellow car drives up and who is it? But Felicia, Felicia arrives. Um, and she's like, how's your spy work going to the guy he's spying on? And she blows his cover and he's like, fuck. And so the general kind of runs away um, and uh, Rod gives her a piece of his mind. He's like, you dumb bitch. Um, and so he stays behind and decides to follow the general back to his house uh, because he's like, he's going to take those vitamins. I know it. So he goes to the general's house and he's just like peeping in their windows. And I was like, not cool, man. Mm-mm. Not cool. And so he's kind of spying in their windows. The general's obviously taken these vitamins. He's taking his advice. He's like making them a drink and like he's dancing with his wife. But the general's probably in like his late forties and his wife's in her thirties and she's smoking hot. So smoking hot. Rod cannot control himself. So He's like, oh, damn. So he he hears them go upstairs and start banging. So he creeps into their house to try and look for evidence. And he finds like a camera behind a brick in their fireplace. But then he hears that the general's tired himself out. And his wife's like, no, please, I need more. And he's like, no, baby, like, I'm, I'm done. I'm out. Um, and so Rod's like, well, I didn't search upstairs. So he creeps upstairs like, dun, 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 dun. and he looks, cause I guess they have separate bedrooms, the general and his wife. So he looks in on Eudora and she's just like on her bed, like rubbing her titties around. And he's like, Oh damn it. And he's like, he's like, I can't, I don't, I don't want to do this. But then of course he has to. So she ends up flipping over on her stomach to like rub one out and he creeps in and he just starts to like get on her. Um, And she's like, this is so great. And then he turns off the light so she doesn't know it's him. So he basically rapes the general's wife. Um, But she loves it, Julie. She's never been fucked like that before in her life. So he doesn't feel so bad about it, I guess. And she doesn't feel bad about it, I guess. Um, So he leaves and he's just like, oh, man, that was really great. Still hasn't come. He doesn't. He doesn't come. 
Um, and so he um, goes back and now it's like the actual competition. It's the World Warlock competition that night. Um, and he goes, it's, it's like the witches have to compete and the warlocks have to compete. Um, and so first the witches go and there's a, there's a woman there competing who's like Romanian. She's from Transylvania. Um, and she's competing for world witch and she takes 21 warlocks that night. Um, but doesn't come. So he's just like, Oh, there's no pleasure in this for her. She's just trying to win. Um, and so he starts banging everybody. He bangs Felicia. Felicia's there. Cause she wants to like observe the, um, the Sabbath and he apologizes to her. So he bangs Nora. He bangs Felicia. Um, he doesn't get to bang Margot. Margot is the Romanian woman. And one thing that's really interesting is when he was banging Eudora, she says, and I quote that bitch Margot. And I thought that was really funny as you will as well. So he's like, what does that mean? And then he's like, Oh, well, if that's Margot, did she mean that witch Margot? Hmm. And so it goes on and he finds out that, um, that, um, the general's killed himself. He finds out the next day that the general has killed himself and he's like, Oh my God, what happened? And the police won't let him talk to, um, won't let him talk to the wife, Eudora, to see what happened or anything. And, um, so he decides he's like going to demand a uh, inquiry into his death and everything. And the police are like, no, no, no. So he ends up getting back in the house. And when he's in the house, he hears Eudora giggling with who else, but Margot, the Romanian witch, because the lesbians. Oh, damn. the lesbians. And so um, he's like, oh, something is something's up with these two people. <clears throat> and so he decides he's going to um, well, he gets the camera, he brings it to like his his guy. Um, he goes back later and he realizes there's like burnt up stuff in the fireplace, like papers. So he collects the papers. And he's going to take them to his guy in the lab because I guess you can find a way to read them. And they explain in great detail, like the science behind reading bird papers in it um, for the 70s. And so then he notices that Margot is like going to London and he's not sure why. So he already knows that she's like following him. She already knows that like he's on her trail, but he doesn't know why. So he follows her to London and she goes into this house that he can't get into. So he goes into a different house, climbs up to the roof, and then shimmies the roofs over to the one that, like, the house that she's in. And he goes in and um, he makes his way down to the other floors. And then he's greeted by, like, three guys with guns. And he's like, they're like, go to the basement. So they go to the basement and it's like, Margo's there. There's three like naked women there and the guys with the guns and there's a big pole. And she's like, huh, I knew you would follow me. Like, who do you work for? And he's like, I'm not going to tell you who do you work for? And she's like, I'm not going to tell you. So he's like, she's like, my three sex kittens here are going to pleasure you to death. So she's, it's called killing with a thousand caresses. Um, and the idea is that they pleasure him until his heart explodes. But I mean, I mean, they don't know anything about Rod, right? So, uh, so um, they tie him up and they're trying to like pleasure him to death. But like, he has so much stamina that they're getting all like horny. And he's like, well, why don't you like lie me down? And then he's like, you guys can be pleasured at the same time that you're torturing me. And they're like, okay. Um, so he bangs one of them into passing out. And then the other two are so frenzied that they're like 69ing. Um and so he like gets them to pass out. And then I guess the like guys with the guns had fallen asleep for some reason. So he escapes. That's just, he just escapes from this like dungeon. Um, and then it turns out that like what was on the camera was actually pictures of like NATO documents and that the stuff that they recovered from the fireplace were also NATO documents. So he's like, Oh, well it was true then that, um, they, you know, that the general had all these documents, but he had them do an inquest and it turned out that the general had taken sleeping pills, but, um, had died later. So, um, it turned out it was a murder. He wasn't actually, um, yeah, he wasn't actually, uh, he didn't actually kill himself. So, um, 
he's like driving back to the city and then he gets accosted by like these three men and then they have a knife fight which was awesome um and it went on for like a whole chapter but he knows jujitsu and karate and he prefers not to kill people um so he just beats their asses and ties them up and is like bye and sends the cops after them um and i appreciated that there was a knife fight in this um so he gets back to the city everything's being revealed to him but he knows that he um has to find out exactly what's happening and he can only find that out through margot so while he was in London, he picked up a little package and we don't know what it is yet. So he ends up at the world championship and like now's the time he has, he's been crowned um, the world warlock, but only if he shows up to the event, which is why um, Margot tried to keep him awake. She didn't want him to win. Um, and so he arrives and he climbs up into this bell tower. And then as they all like banging, he's like, ha 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 fools. I'm the emissary of the devil. And he like jumps down and then he, as part of like their unholy union, he has to bang the world witch, which is Margot. So he decides that while he's pleasuring her to frenzy, he's going to get information out of her. So he's like banging her and she's like, I won't tell you anything. He's like, Oh yeah. So he pulls out this like, a like mechanical dildo that he bought in London and he puts it on his dick and just bangs her till her heart's going to explode. And so she tells him everything. Um, and what she tells him is that it was actually she and Eudora who are members of the opposition who were collecting information and that the general found out, but because he loved his wife so much, he's like, I'll help you, but like, we need to kind of get out of this. Um, and then, uh, she kind of just spills the beans that way. So he's like, okay, I have to go back to Eudora now. Um, and, and, you know, get the rest of the information out of her. So he goes there, um, and he is trying to get info out of her, but then like some weird shit happens where she's like, I am actually a real witch, not Margot. And this is my familiar. And this little like goblin comes out from under her bed. Um, and she's like, you'll never beat us. But it turns out she's actually not a witch. She's a hypnotist. And it's cause like at one point she like raises her husband from the dead, but like they live very remotely. So I don't know how her dead husband got there. Um, and she's like, who is this? And he's like, it's Rod Damon. She could keep by zombie. And he just leaves. Like that was it. Um, so we learn that she's actually a hypnotist and Ron is like, the only way he can beat her is by like banging her basically. Um, so he's like bang her to beat her so he can like escape. Um, and so he does that and then he goes and he finds like under all her panties, he finds like this Brown folder with like all of the information that he was missing about the, the uh, NATO secrets. Um, but her, his wife's like, I didn't kill my husband, this and that. So he's like, oh, that's weird. So as he's leaving, who shows up? But Felicia. Felicia was a double agent. <gasps> yes, this whole time, Felicia was a double agent. And so she's like, you can't take those anywhere. I'm going to kill you. Um, and he's like, oh, no, like, how am I going to beat her? Um, and so she has a gun at him. And he's like, I need to get out of this. They like he like ends up pulling out the electrical dildo from his pocket and whips it at her head. And then she passes out. Um, well, she falls over. And so he goes to wrestle with her. She knees him in the groin and he's like, Oh no, my, my, my power, my manhood. And then as they're wrestling, um, she falls on her gun and shoots herself. And then she dies in his arms and he kisses her. And then um, it's over. And then they decide he goes back to the hotel and um everything's solved with the nato secrets and he um decides that they have to try again to rename a proper world witch and world wizard so instead of having a whole new ceremony he invites all of the witches to just come to his room one by one um and that's how the story ends and then it says like you know who was crowned world witch and world wizard wouldn't you like to know and that's how the book ends Damn. Yeah, so it was a journey, but literally there was not a chapter that went by where he wasn't banging. Um, yeah. But was any of it hot, though? Like, in terms of yeah. character? You know, I'm going to tell you. So from the beginning, they, they, they make it clear that in this story, witchcraft is actually devil worship and devil worship is actually phallus worship. So everybody's obsessed with dicks. Now, as a Satanist, um, I could tell you that's not true, but also I've never been to an orgy, so... I don't know. Um, 
it was very hot. It was, it really was. And he never comes, but he's obsessed with like pleasuring women. There are a few rapey scenes where like he takes women and they end up enjoying it, which kind of ruined it for me. But, um, I mean, all in all, it was pretty hot. So I'm going to say, um, I'm going to say five out of five. Um, no, I'm going to say four out of five because of the rapey scenes. Um, black mass, um, like gross wine, urine drinks. Those would be spicy. Real spicy. Um, but one thing I want to put out about my book, because it was just like the best part of my book, was the words that they used for genitals. They're so good. They're so good. Okay. So um, because he has this condition, he's just constantly um, referring to his dick. Um, so pios means penis, male hardness, obsessed with boobs. Large, heavy breasts is something he says regularly. And that made me think of like Captain Holt on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Yeah. When he's like trying, he's trying to be straight. He's like, I love a woman with big, heavy breasts. That's all I could think of. Um, <laughs> bulging bed staff, penis, rump, priape, knockers. They say knockers a lot, which I appreciated. Love jugs. Oh my. Flesh weights. Oh, lots of descriptions of boobies um king dick like i said uh same balls for balls um constrictor cuni muscles which is like kegel muscles but they, yeah um oh my god labia knock myrtleberry for the clit myrtleberry oh. um Yep. And then just like everything that he described was always in French. Interesting. Yeah. Yoni, honeypot, of course. Um, I'm going to say this is probably the first time they used honeypot in a book ever. I'm going to just take that. Um, upstanding pride and memories. It, it was great. It was, it was a really funny book to read. Um, I really enjoyed it. It didn't really get rapey until the end. Um, which kind of bothered me, but otherwise this book was great. And it was really funny to read a book that was from the perspective of a man written by a man. Like it was like if Ron Burgundy wrote a novel, a romance novel. Um, one of the things that was really funny is like, he's constantly describing the type of like luxury cars they're driving or like the buildings that they're going into with like rich mahogany and um all the like designer couture clothes that he's wearing and it was just so 70s to me i loved it um yeah it was great again what year 71 71 so we're talking like the height of the sexual revolution if you go to again if you go and check out the cover on our socials it has a very James Bondy vibe too, too, doesn't it? It like, does. Yeah. It doesn't. It's funny because like he has a gun, but he never uses a gun. He's very much about um, like he's okay about violence, but he doesn't want to kill anybody. The guy on my cover though looks really old, and he looks really like not as fit as they describe him in the book. Like in the book, he's always like, "I have to maintain peak physical condition," and I'm like real hot and stuff. But this is like kind of a thin old man. Looks like he's maybe wearing a hairpiece because he looks really old um, with a teeny tiny gun, which he never uses in the book. My book was 75 cents. So like obviously inflation. <laughs> All right, Renee, are you going to read us a little piece of Son of a Witch, which is truly my favorite <laughs> title of any book we've read so far? Actually, it might also be up there with the shifter one that was like, thanks for nothing or whatever it was. <laughs> Oh, that's <laughs> you right. are. Yeah. But Son of a Witch rolls off the tongue real nice. So <laughs> please give us a little snapshot of what you got to read this week. All right. So in this moment, Rod Damon is going to his first Black Mass. Ooh. The Black Mass is usually celebrated one hour before midnight. After it's over, the congregation gives itself over to any sort of orgy its members desire. In this instance, aside from the copulative feats of the assembled witches and warlocks, the contestants for World Witch and World Warlock would compete. For this occasion, the men were all given tall wooden staffs into which had been set black candles. The women carried broomsticks with such tapers. A renegade priest, he was German, who had turned from Christ to Lucifer, was to lead the procession chanting the Luciferian litany and swinging a censer at the cardinal points of the compass. 
We assembled outside the pen warehouse, candles lighted. Overhead, a dark sky held a moon just at its full. I stood beside Nora Talbot with Felicia Wilson and Henry Eversley right behind us. Blessed be Santanas! Blessed be his unholy name! <laughs> the witches and warlocks shouted the response to his imitation uh, of the man who wore the garments of a priest reversed on, upon his person. Two girls would, uh, wore inverted cassocks so short uh, that we who followed could see the lower halves of their plump little buttocks as they walked. As we neared the abbey ruins, I saw a radiance limning the darkness outlines of the standing walls of the empty gothic windows. Candles had already been lighted against the celebration of the mass. The defrock priest raised his voice and swung the golden censer more firmly as we passed between the columns of the abbey church, shattered now and lying on the ground, and came into the main aisle. Blessed be are those who adore you. Blessed are they who will do your evil will. Blessed are they who renounce Christ. Blessed are they who sin and wanton in your name after the flesh of others. The litany went on. <laughs> the celebrants roared out the responses to each beatitude. Now we were inside the Abbey Church and I could see the black linen uh, altar cloth with the myriad names of the devil scripted there in gold thread. A gold chalice was set between the many black candles which provided the radiance which we had first seen from the hillside below. The girl acolytes took their places on either side of the altar, their backs to us. And from the witches, a girl stepped forward, shedding her cloak. She was a pretty little thing. Uh, slim yet rounded superbly at breasts and buttocks. Theoretically, she was a virgin who would give her maidenhood to lights flashed in the darkness beyond the altar. It was a silent explosion of red flame, a trick of chemistry, I found myself thinking, but the short hairs on the nape of my neck rose upward. It was so well-timed, so theatrical in nature. And now by those scarlet flames, we could see the goat god Pan or Priapus or Bacchus of bygone ages was standing uh, with a wooden phallus at his hairy loins. The statue swiveled about by some sort of quiet mechanism, presenting its smooth buttocks to the young girl. She knelt, bestowed the satanic kiss to those goat buttocks. This was the kiss of adoration, the renouncing of Christ in favor of the Dark One. The renegade priest began chanting in sonorous Latin phrases, lifting the golden chalice with an inverted cross on its surface, raising it up with his hands. The congregation began singing softly, almost to itself, as the priest chanted. The two girl acolytes bowed low, their short cassocks rising completely above their bare buttocks so that the celebrants were presented with a view of slimly curved legs and plump pink behinds. Now the naked girl rose to her feet, clambered up onto the goat god statue. It turned obediently, presenting its great wooden phallus to her eyes. She straddled it, sank down. Her voice lifted in a cry of pain. Either she had been a virgin or she was a damn good actress. She was sacrificing her virginity to Satan, an act holy in his eyes as the copulation of holy women and strangers had been pleasing to the ancient love goddess like Ishtar and Ashtoreth. In reality, this black mass was a carryover from the, those ancient times. It is akin to the frenzied bacchanals of the Bacchantes. It is the fertility rite in the post-Christ world. It burrows here and takes there and is one more form of phallus worship. As a sexologist and sociologist, I could appreciate such facts. I did not think concise, uh, consciously of them except from moment to moment because I was more concerned by the fact that the priest was pouring a mixture of wine, moss water, and human urine into a chalice. This, with the black bread, was to be part of the unholy communion the worshippers were to take. The naked girl began to wriggle on the wooden phallus that impaled her. She was covered with sweat, her back and buttocks wetly gleaming in the candlelight. Posting now, uh, as though she rode a horse, she was sliding up and down with increasing speed. She was the bride of Satan, and as Roman brides in ancient days had offered their own virginities to the god Mutinus Teutonus as an invocation of his help for a good marriage, so the girl was offering her hymen to the goat god as evidence of her own living adoration. The priest was turning, lifting the chalice that held the black bread and the wine mixture. In seconds, he would pa be passing it among the worshippers, lining up before him. But now he turned, and the naked girl lifted herself off the wooden phallus of the devil statue, showing the blood and jus de couillon on the inside of her thighs. She lay down upon the black linen altarpiece, white flesh against the darkness, symbolic of Satan, and the priest rested the chalice upon her bare belly. He cried out some Latin words. The girl caught the stem of the golden chalice. The priest walked around to the end side of the altar where the girl's feet lay. The defrocked reverend caught hold of her slim ankles, lifting her legs. He bent, gave her honeypot the kiss of worship that was known also as the kiss of the devil. A long moment he spent there kissing there, 
Uh, while the girl writhed and shivered in the pleasure she felt, her legs jerked as if she wanted to wrap them about his neck of the man adoring her womanhood, but his hand grip on her ankles was too strong. She wailed suddenly, her lips hifted, and she jerked and shuddered. A sign went up from the congregation. If they felt the way I did, they could hardly wait for the orgy part of the Black Mass to begin. But the mess noir was not over yet. Now the priest let his cloak fall. He was very excited. The women in the audience moaned and swayed. Stepping between the outstretched legs of the girl, the priest drove forwards. The girl cried out harshly, lifting a hand as if she would push him away. But the priest in the devil's guise conquered. The defrocked priest raised his arms high above his head with the first and fourth fingers of his hands he gave the sign of the horns this sign is that of the horned goat who is the devil in one of his many guises in a sense then the celebrant was dedicating his act of desecration to the evil force he worshipped i just want to say though um again reiterate that as a satanist we don't do that um <laughs> we just that's not what happens at a black mass um but like, if you are a defrock priest, like connect with me, um, you can hit me up on Instagram at Ren Marshall um, and just like, we can just, we can chat. Get spooky together. Get spooky. Rattle and bones, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let me set the scene. We're at the Chinese keyhole, the name of the book. The Chinese keyhole <laughs> is a like shifty um strip club in chinatown in chicago that is notorious for being a little bit greasy and a little bit like on the edge of society so he's wearing his ugly tie and he's going there and he was told to just go and pretend to be a patron and then he'll figure out the next step of what he needs to do so he's never been there before but has heard things so he gets in and he sits at a table <clears throat> The waitress who came over to the table was dressed in an abbreviated kimono job that exposed a lot of legwork. There was a sequin-trimmed coolie hat plunked on top of her head, but between the coolie hat and the top of the kimono was strictly the map of Ireland. She looked a little bit like my cousin in Pittsburgh. What'll it be, mister? A bottle of tavern pale. You look like you can handle something stronger than beer. I looked up to see if she was looking at my tie. I couldn't be sure. She was writing something on her order pad. Beer will be fine, I said. The only thing stronger I want to handle is something like you. Her expression didn't change. These girls got plenty of lip from plenty of guys. I managed to get a squint at the pad she had been writing on. All it said was, Tavern Pale. She muttered something and walked away. I turned back to watch the redhead grind out her curtain call. After some scattered applause, a voice came through the microphone announcing the next act. And now, the most sensational act in the history of the theater presenting Gail Nevere in the dance of the white goddess and the slave girls. Mm -hmm. The lights blacked out completely and the offstage music began again. It was scarcely audible at first, but it built in intensity and volume. There was the clean, wonderful sound of the clarinet coming through the oriental honky-tonk music. It was 1951. She was racist. The curtains opened slowly and an overhead spot came up gradually, time to go brighter with the increasing volume of the music. When it was in full brightness, I, it was shining on the biggest goddamn blonde I ever saw. Standing motionless in the center of the stage, she was stark naked, dazzling white. She was six feet tall, easy. Around her waist, there was a thick iron belt, and from the belt ran six heavy chains. Then, slowly, a lute-sounding instrument plucked out a counterpoint theme with the band and purple sidelights came up around the stage. At the end of each iron chain, there was a naked girl bound to the chain by an iron belt like that that an iron belt like that worn by the big blonde. These girls were Orientals, small with wonderfully tawny-colored skin, tight bodies seeming even smaller in contrast to the Statue of Liberty proportions of the big blonde. They were doing all the dancing, if you would call it dancing. Their bodies moved in syrupy undulations. The big blonde didn't do a thing but pivot around in the center of the stage and crack a long whip into the air. It was a hell of an act. It reached out and caught me and held me hard. My eyes couldn't waver and my thoughts couldn't stray. Everyone in the place must have felt the same way. It was as though a secret, perverted part of you had come to the surface to tantalize and excite you, to hold you spellbound. I had forgotten what I was supposed to be doing there. How long it went on, I'm not sure. I lost track of time. The effect was drug-like. I was drugged until a flash of lightning bolted on the stage. It came suddenly and with a whipping sound. 
In the center of it, there was a figure leaping through the air, a long, muscular body covered with bronze paint. He was big, bigger than the blonde, and he was one hell of a good dancer. He danced around the slave girls holding a large key, freeing them from their shackles one by one. When they were all unlocked, he went to work on the big blonde, grasping the whip from her hand and letting it lash with a fury. His body was coordinated with the sneaky movements of the whip. He was dancing, but it was more than dancing. Some of the lashes were actually hitting the blonde. I could see red marks beginning to appear on her body. She just stood there, stone-like and impassive, taking the beatings of the whip. Then the music became faster, and when everything seemed to be climaxing, it stopped abruptly. The male dancer fell to the floor, breathing heavily, breathing quickly, breathing to the rhythm of sexual exhaustion. And each breath was punctuated with the plucking sound of the lute, slower and softer until this breathing was not apparent and there was no sound, and then there was the darkness again. No one applauded. It wasn't the kind of thing to applaud. I saw a couple of guys mop their foreheads and reach for a drink. It made you want to drink the worst way. I ordered another bottle of beer. It took that and about 15 minutes before I was back to normal and remembered what I had to do. I had a job to do. I had a message to deliver. I still didn't know to whom. About that time, the performers came from backstage to mingle with the customers and get drinks bought for them. The six Chinese slave girls came out with the rest. They wore short kimonos and had nothing on underneath. They made no effort to keep the thing closed. I was alone, obviously on the prowl. I was easy bait. A little Chinese girl came over and looked me up and down. Lonesome? She asked. I made a quick survey of what she had to offer. I was thinking, honey, the way I feel now, it's me for you and you for me. Keep moving, I muttered. Get going. <laughs> she shrugged her shoulders and the kimono opened wider. Man, but I was on a job. It was hard to keep my mind on my work, but I had to. In a couple of minutes, another one came over. She was just as good looking as the first. I don't know. Maybe anything would have looked too good to me at that point. Want some company, mister? Scram, baby. Keep moving. <laughs> we could have fun, she said. I like you. I like the way you look. I like your tie. It's very pretty. Sit down. This time she whispered, she's watching. Say no again, very loud. No, go away. Something is wrong. I can't stay here. Everything is about to break. The blonde knows. She must save it. 2625 Mason Street. Meet me there later. Make sure that you are not followed. They know about me. 2625 Mason Street. See Wong. Then her voice picked up. You don't know how much fun a Chinese girl can be, mister. You heard me. I said, keep moving. And she walked away. Boom! So, wow. the big blonde on the cover who's like, Ooh, who, I have to say, <laughs> I shockingly resemble. <laughs> I'm like, this woman on the front, she got long red nails, stiletto nails. I'm like, that's me. Um, <laughs> real tall, that's me. And she's blonde, that's me. Um, yeah, so that's why on the back it says, <clears throat> was the big blonde a willing victim to the sadist with the whip or did she hold the key to the communist ring? Johnny, I don't know. <laughs> that was the very weirdly, all of a sudden kinky sort of element of the Chinese keyhole by Richard Hitmull. Wow. And that's it, friends. Wow. Wowie zowie. Wowie zowie for books written back in the day. Shit, and it's very interesting because if you look at the history of even um, like queer people in film, queer people in literature, sexy stuff, nudity, all of that stuff, there was a period during the war, post-war, when it was like all fine, right? And then conservative governments came into power and started kind of clampering down and censoring in part because of the fear of communism. They were all about like sniffing out commies in Hollywood. And so... Mm -hmm. Then you saw like kind of this late 70s, 80s, 90s, like conservative. And we've seen that in our romance novels, right? Like books that are older or more recent are like more explicit. But there's this period in like the 80s and 90s where shit was like pretty chaste. Um, and it's because, yeah, the government came down and was like, no, because this book had like those kink elements. There was like some polyamorous elements. There also the dude with the whip who ended up being the bad guy was gay um, oh. like clearly coded as like gay people are evil um because they kept calling him like all of these nasty like homophobic names um and so again they had them kind of seem as like gay people are bad it is it's very it's very interesting to read this stuff and having a historical kind of look at where it's coming from 
Um, but yeah, I'm super glad we read this this week. Thank you for your uh, Pulp Fiction hookup. Uh, and that begins our month of spooky shit. Spooky. Spooky. Um, so next, join us next week for more spooky shit. Head more to our spooky. socials. Check out our bingo card. Mm-hmm. And mark down the evening of October 30th because we're going to come to you live on Instagram. Yes. Yes. Well, it was super nice shot with you, Renee. Oh my God. So nice. Want to sing us out? Sure do. <clears throat> Ravage love. Ravage love. Bye. Bye. Artwork for the podcast was created by Karen McKnight. Special thanks to Press Start to Join for production assistance. For gaming and tech news, search Press Start to Join or on social media at PS, the number two, J Show. Connect with us online at Ravage Love on Instagram and by email at ravagelove.podcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.